love uh, these kind of normal Sundays. Um, no big event or activity going on. It's not a special Sunday. It's just a typical Sunday where we can focus our hearts on the Lord, worship and praise His name, and hear God's Word preached. I love to see Sundays where our hearts are fixed on the cross alone. Thanks again, as uh, always, to our praise team and Pastor Dan for their ministry to us and leading, leading us in song. I love that Isaac Watts hymn at the cross. Let's definitely sing more of that song and um, songs written by Isaac Watts. He really understood the gospel, understood um, the gravity of our sins and what was accomplished at the cross on our behalf. And what what a thrill to uh, put those truths in song and worship together as a body of Christ. It is evident that God is uh, working in our midst uh, we are humbled and um, just tremendously thankful for God's faithfulness to his body here at Cornerstone. I think our membership class has over 30 people signed up and uh, people that have been, uh, some waited a few months for the class. And the class finally started last week and uh, I just encouraged to see so many uh, desiring to grow in the Lord and I just heard our CBF ministry in Irvine is doing quite well. well we're thankful for your prayers and for your support. Uh, their meetings have been just uh, filled to capacity. And there are over 17 college gals signed up for small groups. So they need to recruit some uh, sisters, ladies, to uh, lead the small groups. That's just like, I, don't, I don't know how many guys signed up. They didn't tell me. Maybe like three guys signed up with the guys and... 70 for the girls, but I mean, that's encouraging to, to hear. Let's continue to pray for um, outre- outreach ministry of CBF on the campus of UC Irvine. Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn and open to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. And for me, it's all gravy from here on out. My difficult passage is behind, behind me and behind us. And uh, really, uh, the theme that we as a church love the most is our subject of our study this morning, the subject of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 through 10, here are Paul's words, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Uh, recently, I've been reading, a, reading some material from uh, Lutheran writers, um, men who uh, really... I've studied the scriptures and studied Luther's theology. And uh, their understanding of the gospel has been quite helpful to me, understanding the gospel and its implications for the Christian life. Luther had a very interesting take on the law. His mindset was the law to Christians or to the world is not just what it contains, information of the law, but what it does to us the effect of the law to the human heart. 
he uses the phrase uses of the law. How God uses the law to constrain sin uh, as a guide for behavior in the civil world. And how God uses the law for the believer and the unbeliever to accuse us, to convict us, to provoke in us guilt and shame. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. How the Jews who are under the law, they understand the Old Testament, they understand God's holy code, and they're convicted by it. But those that are apart from the law, the Gentiles, they by nature, Romans 2.14, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Even though the Gentiles do not have the law, the law is at work in their hearts by their conscience, bearing witness, conflicting thoughts that accuse them or excuse them. Either they convicts or they try to justify themselves. And so because of this working, um, all mankind respond in a certain way to God. And uh, Luther's comment, comment, comments on the book of Genesis was helpful. He was saying, um, before sin into the world, Adam and Eve would hear God walking through the garden, rustling of the leaves, and they would run to God. They would run toward God to be with him. Just like uh, many of our children, I hope all of our children do when we come home, they hear daddy's keys in the, in the door, or they hear mom open the garage door, they run to the door to be with us. But a strange thing happened after sin into, into the world, after they fell. Uh, they heard Yahweh walking through the cool garden in the cool of the day. They heard the rustling of the leaves, and what did they do? They ran and they hid. They ran from God. In their shame, in their guilt, they're so convicted, they ran from God. Luther says this is an example of the use of the law. It's not so much what the law says, but what it does to us. So for us, anything that causes us to go away from God strikes fear in our hearts causes us to have anxiety, trepidation, doubt, shame, causes us despair. That is the law working in our hearts. Anything that compels us to run from God's grace, to run from God, anything in life that provokes us to rely on ourselves, assert our independence from God as as creatures, anything that causes us, provokes us to seek self-control, autonomy. It might be, uh, you know, it's, it might be hard for you to discern for yourself um, how the law works in your own heart. But you know, next time you sit in a small group, uh, you listen to the fellow members in the small group, listen to what they are sharing. And if you take me up on this, I think you, you'll be able to discern um, 
the law that is at work in the people in that small group. Um, it could be um, uncertainty on how to pay the bills, financial instability, instability at work or business, your company, personal health concerns or the health of loved ones, uh, future for yourself, for your spouse, maybe future for your children, what awaits them as they grow up, uh, being disappointed by yourself, by others. You know, even a news story about a tragedy halfway around the world can, can uh, elicit this kind of heart response where our fears multiply along with all kinds of other sinful reactions like uh, bitterness, anger, resentment, fault-finding, being hypercritical, unforgiving spirit. So it's not just the Ten Commandments that strike fear in our hearts because of our sins. But anything that does the same thing to us is a law to us. Um, For me, Bob and I talked about this a few weeks ago. Uh, One of the defining memories that I have in my life is my dad's filing for bankruptcy when I was in college. That event kind of like was my, I don't know, I I grew up kind of late. I was end of my innocence. I was innocent till college. Um, When that event happened, my world changed. And how I react to bills that come on the mail, how I, you know, especially unforeseen bills, my cars, you know, acting up and making noise, or, or uncertainty about finances, or my family, or being in control of my own, own family. Because of that event, it becomes a law to me, and my response is to fear, to be anxious, seek control seek to manipulate and take over rather than trust and rely upon Christ. And that just continues, I believe, as you get older. Um, The effect of the law in our hearts grows, does not diminish. And so you get married, and that just grows. The vulnerability just grows. You have, you know, one child, two, and you try four, and it just grows. And it never never ends. Anything and everything can be this uh, rustling leaves noise to us. Anything and everything. Our hearts are always tied to this work of the law. Now, to paraphrase C.S. Lewis, uh, the law whispers in our comforts, but the law shouts with a megaphone in our trials and sufferings. The loudest rustling of the leaves causing our hearts to despair and shake is made by, it's made when we suffer, when we go through trials, when we uh, go through sorrows and disappointments of life. I think for most, if not all of us, uh, what we fear in suffering is not the suffering itself, but the fears that the suffering elicits in our hearts. The, the doubts, the anxieties, the feelings of lostness, the feelings of not being in control. That is the worst part of suffering. Think back to last time you were sick, last time you were really ill. 
I mean, for some of the guys, it was the physical pain we dreaded the most. But really, think about it. The physical pain paled in comparison to the spiritual uh, difficulty of feeling helpless, the anxiety, the fear, um, the doubts that that suffering caused. The loudest rustling of the leaves comes with suffering. Well, most of us know by now that the reality for everyone is suffering is part of our, our existence. One thing that is unavoidable in life, you know, the common phrase is, two things that are unavoidable in life is death and taxes. I would add a third. Death, taxes, and suffering. The reality, the common experience for all of us is uh, trouble, trials, suffering. This is one thing that is common to all of us. Life is but one problem after another, one trouble after another. Job 5, 7 said, As sparks fly upward, man is born to trouble. Job 14, 1, A man's days are few, and those few days are full of trouble. J.C. Rao wrote, Heart trouble is the commonest thing in the world. No rank, class, or condition is exempt from it. No bars, bolts, or locks can keep it out. Everyone must drink many bitter cups of trouble and sorrow in this world. Unavoidable for all for everyone. But for believers, there is an added privilege of suffering for Christ. Everyone suffers. Christians, we have an added category, and it is a privilege. It is a gift. The gift to be able to suffer for Jesus Christ. Suffering and Christian, being a Christian are, are almost synonymous. It comes, comes together. Jesus promised that you will be persecuted. Matthew 10, if they hate you, remember that they hated me first. Apostle Peter said in his epistle, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. This is uh, the common experience for all Christians. Luke 9.23 If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, be willing, and be ready to die to himself and follow me. John 15.20 Remember the word I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. The book of Hebrews is all about these men and women because of their faith. Look forward to the Messiah. And they wrought the consequences of their faith, which was personal suffering. Now here we are 2,000 years later, and it's still true to us. We look back and we trust in that same Messiah, and we still bear the same consequences of that faith, which is suffering in our lives. And so for Christians, the rustling of the leaves is, um, we get a double dose, a twofold. Suffering in life and suffering as Christians. 
Um, and, uh, you know, I don't know about you guys, but more and more you live, you experience this firsthand. I, I shared this before, but we, my wife and I went through this intimately, this loud noise of rustling leaves when the whole issue with Ethan and foster care and adoption we actually heard after caring for him for over a year, we're vacationing in Arizona at a, muse- at a, we're at a science museum, and we called our social worker, and she said so bluntly that Ethan's going back to his birth mom, even though she doesn't want him, and she's in jail, and so on and so forth, legal, legal reasons. And we were so disheartened. Uh, we were so broken. We had cared for him for over a year. We loved him as our own. And so here we are, and like, you know, I'm supposed to be the husband and a good father, care, separate my wife, but it was like every man for himself. <laughs> so we went to our corners, and uh, she's kind of, you know, sort of finds herself, find faith in Christ in her heart. I'm trying to do it in my own heart, and we're uh, driving back, and wow, the reality of like losing uh, a loved one. You know, you're, you're drowning, you're trying to hit bottom. So when you hit bottom, you can brace yourself and push yourself back up to the, uh, to the surface. But we talked about it later. There was no bottom. We were sinking and sinking and sinking, and there was no bottom. I'm sure to everyone here, you can in some way em- kind of sympathize, understand what that is like for your own life. When you're surrounded by sorrow, and fear multiply within you. Well, that is why so many of us avoid suffering and sometimes avoid it at all costs because we feel, we believe there is no cure, there is no answer, there is no solution. Well, this passage is such an encouragement to us. This passage is such a privilege for us this morning to be studying this passage. Because this is an actual person. This actually happened. Paul lived 2,000 years ago, was in prison, and he's writing Timothy in a dungeon, and he's giving Timothy the answer, the cure that will quiet the rustling leaves, that will help Timothy rise above um, the, the fears that multiply due to sufferings in the world, in life, and sufferings of the Christian. And for Paul, it's not just theory. It's not just, he's not just regurgitating ideas. He didn't get this, you know, at an article, or he, he picked it up from some journal, or he Googled it somewhere. No, he, he lived it out. He experienced it firsthand. In fact, he's living it out as he wrote this letter. And he's giving Timothy a part of his heart, truth that has sustained him. And by way of Timothy, we are receiving it for ourselves. And, um, and it is uh, amazing, this cure. Um, it is effectual for Paul. It is effectual for Timothy. And the Bible says it will be effectual for us. If we get this truth in our hearts it will set us free from being uh, afraid of sufferings in this world and afraid of sufferings for Christ. You know, fearful of life. 
fearful of every noise, fearful of uncertainty, fearful of illogical things, it'll set us free. Well, we have been studying the previous passage for several weeks, and uh, if anyone was a brave soldier, it was the Apostle Paul. We looked about. We talked about this soldier who is um, doesn't entangle himself with civilian business, but he's singularly devoted to his enlisting officer so that he might please him. No one embodies that more than the Apostle Paul. His the fact that he is in a dungeon testifies to his singular devotion to Jesus Christ. Talk about an excellent athlete. He was intense in his self-discipline, rigorous in his adherence to the Word of God, to obey the Word of God so that he might not be disqualified. 1 Corinthians 9, 24-27 Do you not know that in, all, in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And Paul says, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. No, I discipline my body. I keep it under control. I obey the rules. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul was a devoted soldier, conscientious athlete, and he was um, a hard-working farmer. Paul said, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and said by the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I worked harder than any of them. He's defending his apostolic authority. They considered him a false apostle because he was not with the Lord during his incarnational ministry. And one of the reasons Paul gives, one of the defenses he gives to his apostolic authority, validity, is his uh, diligence. How strenuously he worked for Christ. And he says, inspired by the Holy Spirit, all the apostles, I worked harder than all of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that was within me. He says, he said in Romans 15, 19 and 20, how from Jerusalem all the around to uh, Asia Minor, he fulfilled the ministry of the gospel. St. Corinthians 11, 23 through 27. And the Corinthians drove him to this. They were so insistent on attacking his apostolic authority, not to defend himself, not that he was insecure or any kind of um, pride in his heart, but for their sake, he defended his uh, apostleship and he, he's driven to share with them, tell them what he endured as an apostle of Christ. Second Corinthians 11.23, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I am talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and day I was adrift at sea. 
frequent journeys. I was in danger from rivers, from robbers, my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, in the wilderness, at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. He was a hard-working farmer throughout his whole life. And here he is at the end of his life. And later on, he would say in chapter 4, I ran a good race. I fought a good fight. I'm ready for the crown of righteousness that the Lord himself will give to all those who wait his coming. He is finishing the race. And how is he finishing it? Again, suffering in a dungeon. The question we need to ask is how was he able to endure through all of that suffering? What enabled Paul? What motivated Paul to live such a life and now suffer for Christ in that way? How was he able to uh, rise above, almost superhuman, the sufferings that is common to all men and sufferings for Christ? not get lost in that noise and endure to the end. Paul opens his hearts and he gives us three motivations. Three motivations that ensured his faithful endurance to the end and to all those who would have these as their motivations as well. First motivation is the primacy of Christ. The primacy of Jesus Christ. Second is the prevailing power of God's word. Prevailing power of God's word. Third is God's preordained means of saving the elect. God's preordained means of saving the elect. I mean, this is so, so awesome. We find here. Paul is not motivated by sordid gain. He's not trying to barter with God. He's not trying to gain favor with God. He's not doing it out of guilt. God, I'm so sorry for you know, what I did to Stephen. Man, I was so bad. I feel so bad. I'm going to apologize to Stephen when I get to heaven. First thing I'm going to do, right? And all those Christians, I remember their faces, the the moms and dads and confiscating their property and arresting them. I did so much evil. I'm so riddled with guilt. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to serve you. I'm going to be a minister. I'm going to go preach the gospel. I'm going to go to jail for you so that in the scale, I will balance out all my bad deeds with the good works I will do. And when I meet with you, I will have a place to stand before you because of all my righteous deeds, and I will enter into heaven, or I have a righteous standing before you because of my accomplishments. That is not Paul's mindset. Paul's motivation is anything but these. He is motivated by the primacy of Christ, the power of God's word, and the preordained means of saving the lost. And he begins in verse 8, Remember Jesus Christ. Remember the present active imperative clear command given to Timothy. The first command was be strengthened and then entrust and then think over verse 7 and then in verse 8, really a new section, a new thought. 
he begins by commanding Timothy, remember Jesus Christ. See, for Paul, he was not his own hero. He was not admiring his devotion to the enlisting officer. He was not looking at his stats as an athlete. He was not looking at himself as a hard-working farmer. To Paul, in his mind, the ultimate soldier, athlete, and farmer was Jesus Christ. His thoughts were of the Lord. His perfect life, sacrificial death, His resurrection and ascension was what was on His heart. The Greek verb here is in the active voice, carries the idea of continuing to remember Keep on remembering. Put Jesus always, Timothy, at the forefront of your mind. This will drown out those noises. This will muffle those sounds. By keeping the primacy of Christ at the forefront of our hearts. For Paul, Jesus was, again, the greatest soldier, athlete, farmer, whoever was. Jesus fought the greatest battle and won the greatest victory. He ran the greatest race and won the greatest prize. He sowed the perfect seed and reaped the perfect harvest. And this is the first and foremost cure. Albert Barnes wrote, There is nothing better fitted to enable us to endure the labors and trials of this life than to think of the Savior. I think so many of us, we want to jump into the Christian life. And we want to live the Christian life. And we wonder why we don't last very long. Why we lose heart so easily and so quickly. How we have so little endurance in the Christian race. It is because, um, you know, we have this cancer in our hearts and we have the most effective medicine, but we're just dabbing it on our skin. I don't care how strong a medicine you have, but if it's not applied correctly, it will have no effect. You need to inject that medicine into the marrow, right to its source to kill that cancer. And that is what Paul is saying here. Spiritual warfare is internal. And it's fought in our minds. And if we want to live for Christ, if we want to make an impact for Jesus, if we want to suffer in this world and suffer for Christ, and at the end, finish the race, you need to do spiritual surgery, make an incision in our minds, and take out that legalistic hearts, and that liberty mind, and put Jesus Christ, fix Him firmly, at the very depth of our being, so that that He would be our singular motivation, first and foremost motivation. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ. Now, some people think Christ is Jesus' last name. No, it's not His last name. It's not Jesus Christ. Common mistake. Happened to me before too. Um, It's his title. uh, Christos, anointed one. Hebrew Messiah. The promised Savior. The promised one uh, 
promised from Genesis 3.15, prophesied throughout the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus. And the first declaration of this is found by Apostle Peter in Matthew 16. Jesus asked the disciples, who do the people say I am? They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. He said to them, who do you say I am? And Peter spoke up and he said, blasphemous words, you are the Christ. You are the promised one. You are the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. You are the son of the living God. That's who you are to remember. That he is the fulfillment of the prophecies and the law. He embodies the end of the law. He is our savior. The deliverer from our, the deliverer from our sins. Not only that, he is risen from the dead. Literally, having been raised from the dead, Paul is not speaking of remembering the historical facts of the resurrection. He's not saying, like, remember, he was dead, and three days he rose, and the, you know, the stone was rolled away, and the angel was there. No, he's, he's talking about he is alive. He is risen. He is here now. Yes, he died. He lived a perfect life, and he died like everyone died and everyone will die except for Jesus. The grave could not hold on to him. He rose from the grave and he's alive right now. He is risen. He was, Romans 1.4, declared to be the Son of God in power in accordance to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And um, Paul experienced this firsthand the power of the risen Christ. Uh, Later on in chapter 4, verse 17, he talks about Alexander, the metal worker, and we don't know what he did, but Paul mentions him by name, and he said, he did great harm to me. Beware of him. Timothy, if you come to Rome, be aware of this man, Alexander. He strongly opposed our message At my first defense, no one came to stand by me. Everyone deserted me. Verse 17, but the Lord stood by me, strengthened me. That's powerful. Paul said, I was all alone, but I don't serve a, a dead Savior. I don't serve a historical figure. I don't worship someone who has passed. I worship the Lord who has risen. And he stood by me. And I received strength. I received grace. Grace. And that's how I am enduring in this dungeon. Paul is saying, remember Jesus, the Messiah, who is alive, who is the offspring of David. Speaking of his humanity, of his kingly authority, rightful king in the nation of Israel, as preached in my gospel. Now, Paul loved the gospel, entrusted to him by, by the Lord himself, considered it his gospel, but arguably there is a, a play on words here where the heteros gospels, the false gospels, they were known as false because 
they denied that Jesus was the full Savior. They denied that Jesus was a risen, the bodily resurrection of Christ, and they denied his humanity. Paul is saying they are false gospels. My gospel is orthodox. It's true. The true gospel acknowledges Jesus as Savior, as the promised Messiah, affirms his bodily resurrection, and affirms fully his complete humanity as king of Israel and king of all the nations. So, the first motivation that enabled him to suffer and endure to the end was the primacy of Jesus Christ. And second is the prevailing power of God's word. The prevailing power of God's word. I mean, this is awesome. It says, this is my gospel, verse 8, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound, it's not chained. At the time Paul wrote this, he was in the Mamertine prison in Rome. The remnants of this haphazardly put together prison still exists in Rome. They consist of two apartments, one on top of another, built with large uncemented stones. There is no entrance to this prison. There were just holes on top of each other and you were lowered by rope. There was no sanitation here at all. Small hole that let in light and air. They would bring down food, bring up, bring down criminals and take up criminals for them to be executed. This was Paul's condition. Paul here is not lamenting a situation. He's using himself as an object lesson, a visual sermon. He's, 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 he's articulating his, uh, his prevailing faith in the Word of God, the power of the Word of God, and how God's Word reigns supreme even at the most uh, ungodly men and their, their plans. Here he is, locked in a prison cell. His heart is to preach Christ where he's not been preached. And he says, I rejoice. I am filled with gratitude and contentment. Why? Because the word of God is not bound. And in the Greek, it's the same word. One's a verb, one's a noun. I am chained. The word of God is not chained. Nothing hinders the going forth of the word of God. This happened before in Philippians 1. In his first arrest in Rome, he was in house arrest. And he said, then, I want you to know, brothers, what has happened to me has served to advance the gospel. What, Paul? That makes no sense. You were put in house arrest and your ministry has grown? Your evangelism, your missions work has grown? It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. There was one place he couldn't reach was uh, the powers in, the, in the, the central city of Rome. And yet because of his imprisonment, he was able to preach Christ within the walls. So much so, later on in Philippians, he says, someone from the household of Caesar gives you greetings. That means through Paul's preaching, 
a member of Caesar's own household heard the gospel and became a believer. It doesn't mention the person by name because the person would be arrested and persecuted. But he says, I want you to know a member of the household of Caesar is saved. And so my arrest has caused the gospel to go forth all the more. And then in 2 Timothy 4, we had talked about it earlier, about the Alexander, the metal worker, how at his first defense, no one came to stand by him, all deserted Paul. Paul said, the Lord stood by me, strengthened me. Let me finish that sentence. 2 Timothy 4, 17, so that through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. From this point on, that has been the experience of Christians. That no matter the circumstances, the Word of God cannot be stopped. In the city of Rome at one time, there were some 600 miles of catacombs. Nearly all of them dug and used by 10 generations of Christians of over a period of 300 years. In the early centuries of the Christian church, these catacombs served as meeting places and burial places. Some historians say for as many as 4 million believers. A common inscription found on the walls is this phrase, the word of God is not bound. The word of God is not bound. They can persecute us. They can torture us, drive us to meet in the catacombs and and worship in the dark. But the word of God cannot be bound. That was what was driving Paul, his motivation. He knew that as long as he was faithful to Christ, remembering the Lord and faithfully proclaiming Him, God will do His work of saving the lost. And then the third motivation, because it is God's preordained means of saving the elect. Look at verse 10. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, In this exhortation, we see a summation of the massive biblical truth that all of Christian life is a matter of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. In God's eyes, and according to Scripture, it is a perfect marriage. We want to separate this union. We want a divorce to occur. But in the Scriptures, it's a perfect marriage of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. For many of us, we see, we live the Christian life as if God saved us. It's now up to us. It is our sole responsibility to save the lost, to live the Christian life. It's all up to us. It's our 100% responsibility. On the other hand, many of us live as though God is sovereign. He will save There is nothing we have to do at all. And if we do anything, we're undermining God's sovereignty. We're undermining Reformed theology. So the best way to serve God is to do nothing at all. The Apostle Paul will never let us rest with either of these false attitudes. 
because they're both unbiblical if separated. The Bible teaches both that God has ordained the elect. God has ordained the elect in the world. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5, Romans 8, Romans 9. Election, predestination are biblical terms, biblical truths. God has a remnant of his people in every tribe, tongue, and language scattered throughout the world. God will not lose a single that belonged to him. The high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed for them, just like he did not lose a single Christian while he was on the earth. Jesus prayed and promised he will not lose a single one that belongs to God. God's elect will be saved. God is perfectly sovereign in salvation. But what is the means by which God saves the elect? He has ordained normal means, human means to save the elect. And that's our responsibility. That's our responsibility. We see that suffering of Christ's servants is the means by which God has chosen to save the elect. It is through us, through our lives, and through our suffering, he will say. He will not do it apart from us. He will not do it apart from human agency. He will solely do it through human beings. That is why the old Puritan model in prayer was this, pray and work. Pray and work. They go hand in hand. We depend on the Lord. We trust God. At the same time, we work with all our might. Consider the prayer of St. Augustine. Lord, command what you will, but give what you command. God, command me, but you must give me what you command. It's both and, not either or. And that sustained Paul to the end because he believed and knew that it was not in vain that he was suffering for Christ. That his suffering was all under the sovereignty of God and God was using it, the salvation of the elect, for them to obtain the forgiveness of sins, to be with Christ forever. Well, Three closing thoughts to wrap up our time. Would you consider uh, diagnosing your hearts this, this morning and consider what are the rustling of the leaves for you? What has the effect of the law in your heart? I think for many of us, we're, we don't, our hearts don't, our hearts are torn with fear or, or, or anxiety. Or we don't want to hide and run because we break necessarily the, the commands of Scripture. But our hearts are filled with terror when, with other things in life. Maybe right now it could be considering the future of your children. You think about the uncertainty of the time, and the pressures of life, and you consider your children, it strikes fear in your heart, 
and it tempts you to take control and legalistically approach parenting, legalistically approach um, your family or caring for your wife. You consider instability of the finances and, and job situation, your company, your business, and it keeps you up at night, and it's an effect of the law, and you can't drown out the sound. And so you react by hiding or running or running to functioning saviors. Or it could be countless other things. You've never considered maybe how this has the effect of the law in your hearts. Or if it's causing you to hide from God, know that it does. And know that the solution is, just like Paul, his command to Timothy is to remember Jesus Christ. It's, uh, it sounds so simple, but it's the most difficult thing to, uh, to inject the gospel below the, the hidden man in the heart and place the gospel there and have him uh, be the source of our faith and our trust. And the fruits of that will muffle these noises and grant you freedom to follow Christ. Diagnose your heart. Help one another. My wife and I have been doing this past few weeks. So helpful to us. Uh, things that uh, cause us to go astray from Christ. Diagnose, diagnose your heart in that way. Secondly, um, what is your current excuse for your lack of evangelism? Or your reason for your restlessness? The command here given by Paul is not for us to imitate or impersonate his circumstances, but to impersonate, imitate his faith. Take that and try that again. Command here is to imitate his faith, not replicate his circumstances. For Paul, God's will for him was to stay in the dungeon as a chained criminal and preach Christ there. For Timothy, it was not to go to a dungeon and preach Christ in the dungeon. For Timothy, it was for him to stay where he is, the pastor of Ephesus, and preach the Bible there. For you and everyone here, it's different. And so for you to say, oh, I can't wait till I start ministry. I can't wait till I can start evangelizing or, or missions work. When will I start missions work? Um, all of us, we're bound in some way. For Paul, it was chains. Maybe for you, it's diapers, right? For Paul, it was walls. Maybe by you, for you, it's cubicles, right? For Paul, it was uh, guards. Maybe it's other family or friends' relationships. Missionaries have their role. Pastors have their role. We all have our roles. But the Word of God is not bound, our circumstances do not limit our evangelism or our missions work. God has placed each of us and His Word is not bound if we trust in Christ and if we preach Christ by our lives and by our words. Wherever we are, if we are faithfully following Christ, we are proclaiming God's Word and God's Word is advancing 
But if you're not doing that, you will be restless wherever you are. You will be in the mission field, in the front lines, and you will feel restless. You will feel, I'm not doing God's work. I am not serving Christ. I am not evangelizing. I am not fulfilling God's will for me. But if you are, understanding the the power of God's word, how it works in us and through us, whatever your situation right now, whatever it is, your heart will be filled with joy because you know the word of God goes forth. Matthew 5.16 says in the same way, let your light shine before men, so shine so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And third and finally, I hope we see uh, this is a true picture of the gospel-centered life. Uh, Here we see Paul and the fruits of the gospel in his life. The power of the gospel in his life where he is laboring and toiling to be the soldier, athlete, farmer that God called him to be, all so that the gospel might go forth to save the elect. Through all of this, perfect marriage, perfect balance of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. There is no conflict here. There is no schizophrenia. There is no confusion. Paul understands God's sovereignty. Paul understands the elect and God's will be done. But it doesn't cause him to be passive, introspective, to be disobedient. But that sovereignty causes him to be engaged in the work of the gospel to the lost, that the elect might be saved. Anytime there is any conflict in our hearts, let us go to this picture of Paul in a dungeon and his words here, remembering Christ and how he was faithful to the end. Father, we thank you and praise you and bless your name. God, we thank you for your dear servant, Apostle Paul. We thank you for his heart that you by grace wrought in him. Lord, at one time, he was a a man filled with religious pride. He uh, was resolute against your grace. He cried out against your mercy and he um, committed himself to oppose you. But God, just like us, as we sang this morning, Lord, you opened his eyes to see the mercy and grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He saw the risen Lord seated on the throne of David, exalted, lifted high. And Lord, you brought him to his knees You melted his heart. And Lord, you saved him. And that grace was not in vain. That grace uh, that saved him, sanctified, sustained, and brought him here to the end of his life where he is persevering with the gospel of Christ. Lord, that is the same grace that is active in our lives. That is the same gospel that we believe in, that we trust in, that we hope in. Oh Lord, may your son and your son's gospel be our motivation. May the truth that your word 
cannot be bound, cannot be chained, be our motivation. And may the truth that your sovereign will is done through feeble hands motivate us as we seek to live lives as servants of Christ. We thank you. We thank you for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.